0: Genesis chapter 2. Pastor John, Pastor Marshall, uh, whatever you call him, just referenced that uh, marriage is not that bad. Well, we're actually going to talk about the foes of marriage. And we're going to talk about how hard marriage is this morning. So I might scare some of you you young people who are entertaining marriage in the future. But it is indeed worth every bit of the work that goes into marriage. Uh, But we're going to talk about that through Genesis chapter 3. Now on Friday night, if you weren't with us, we went through two different components of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We we went to... um, Genesis 1 and looked at how God created them being man and woman, male and female created he them, and we looked at the foundation of marriage. Then we went into Genesis 2 in great detail and we looked at the framework of marriage. And today we're going to look at the end of Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and look at the foes of marriage. I believe so strongly in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that every believer, no matter the age, no matter the level of spiritual growth, no matter the length you've been believer, you need to know Genesis 1, 2, and 3 like nothing else in the Bible. It tells us about God's character. It tells us about God's makeup as a Godhead, the Trinity. It tells us about the relationship between God and man, the relationship between Satan and man, and the relationship between man and woman. And if you get those general basic things, you're often and running with a good foundation, but so many miss that. And in the modern church today, we're overlooking those three chapters, because frankly, they're not politically correct. And the church today is trying to be politically correct without being biblically incorrect, which is a mistake. You cannot be both of them. You're going to have to choose to be biblically correct and just accept the fact that no one's going to like creation. They want evolution. They're not going to like that we are inherently sinful. They want us to say we're great. And they do not want us to point out the difference between man and woman. But that's a great mistake across the board. So know these things and know them inside and out. Now, by means of introduction, let me say there is nothing easy about marriage. I know, that just burst probably some young people's bubbles, but uh, I've been married for almost 24 years, and I have the privilege to counsel young couples before they get married, and I'm convinced that all of them think that I have a bad marriage. Because I tell them for the, the next six, nine months I have with them in counseling, I tell them how hard marriage is. It's it's so hard. And they must think, man, Mrs. Cable must be an awful woman to be married to. He's always telling us how hard marriage is. And I'm trying to prepare them because young couples and those of you who are married, you were there once, you went into marriage with nothing but optimism. Your marriage was gonna be better than your parents' marriage. We weren't gonna have any problems, it was gonna be wonderful, and you focus on the wedding being beautiful. And don't think about the day after, or the next month after, or certainly the next year after. And that's the case for all of us. And if you're married today, and if you think your marriage is wonderful, and it's been easy all along the way, two things are true, or one of two things. Either you're married to a saint someone who is incredible, someone who is just tolerable of all of your flaws, or secondly, more likely, you're delusional and you don't realize how miserable your spouse is. Marriage is hard. Marriage is very difficult. For even the best of people, marriage is hard. And it's always really meant to be that way on some level. Obviously, before the fall, it was different than after the fall, which we'll see today, time uh, allowing that. But We preachers make a mistake very early on. We tell you casually and repeatedly that God put man in a perfect environment, and we screwed it all up when we sinned. Adam and Eve sinned, and so all the good things that we were supposed to have went away. Well, there's some truth to that, but what we we rarely tell you is what is right in the Bible. God did not put Adam and Eve in a perfect environment. The Garden of Eden was not perfect. Because there was an enemy already there. There was a a sin-soaked serpent already there. So when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, yes, it was beautiful. It was a paradise. But it was already meant to be a battlefield. So even before man and woman sinned, that first marriage, as incredible as it must have been... It was going to be a battle. And God knew that and that was intentional. So let's read Genesis 2.25. This chapter, Genesis 2, details the sixth day of creation where God formed man out of the dust of the ground and Eve out of the rib of man. And they had a beautiful first blind date. And here's the uh, wedding ceremony. And then verse 25, the Bible says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not naked. So they had this great start to a marriage. It was a picture-perfect wedding. But those pictures could not be posted on the wall or posted on social media because they were both naked and not ashamed, all right? Uh, But I want you to now see the immediate verse following. that Genesis 3.1. The first word starts with now. Present. Great marriage ceremony, great start marital intimacy, body, soul, spirit, they become one. And yet, we read immediately after that, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So write down, if you're taking notes, number one, your first foe you should be aware of is a spying serpent. A spying serpent. No matter how good your marriage is, no matter how young your marriage is, No matter how weak your marriage is, no matter how old your marriage is, you and I, who are married, we all have an enemy, an adversary, who is trying to ruin what you have, and he is a spying serpent. Ladies and gentlemen, we are being watched. And we are being watched by a very subtle, subtle being who hates the holy union of one man and one woman. Long before God implemented and ordained the church... Satan hated marriage. Long before human government was established, Satan hated marriage. Remember, God cast Satan out of heaven. He took him from his lofty position in glory and cast him to the earth. So Satan has become an enemy of God, and anything God loves, Satan hates. Anything God does, Satan wants to destroy. And the very first thing God did in our world after he created man and female... He put them together in holy matrimony. And from that moment on, Satan set his sights on destroying marriage. Every marriage he destroys is a thrill for him. Every marriage he troubles is an excitement. It's a a thing he longs to do. He's been fighting marriage longer than he's been fighting anything else in our world. And he has been watching us for thousands of years. He knows our instincts. He knows our tendencies. He knows what men do instinctually. He knows what women do instinctually. He knows how to destroy marriage. He knows what works best. He knows what doesn't work best. He knows at what seasons of life, marriages are most vulnerable. He knows at what seasons of the day and of the week, marriages are most vulnerable. He knows what seasons of the months. Marriages are most vulnerable. He's been watching for thousands of years. He's good at destroying what God has given us. And so right out of the gate, husbands, just know that every day your wife is being watched. Ladies, your husband every day is being watched. And this should move you. It should motivate you to pray for your spouse. It should move you and motivate you to keep your spouse close to you, knowing that somebody is watching. One of you'd hold your spot in Genesis 3 and take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 7. I may not have mentioned it, but in the notes this morning are the outlines from Friday night so that you know where we have come from, those of you who couldn't make it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be back at Genesis 3, but the context of 1 Corinthians 7 is sexual purity, which is an a obvious big part of Christianity, of God's expectations for his children. And in verse number 2 of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes these words, he says, "...nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband." And then he says, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. That's marital kindness. It's marital good, but it's connected to fornication, which in a marriage is not. It's sexuality and it's sexual kindness and goodness. And he finishes likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise, also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Now, verse number five, I tell every young couple I'm marrying to understand this. And the Bible says, not Paul, not a pastor, not a father, not a mother. This is the word of God. This is important enough for God to tell us. In the same book about eternal things, he says, Defraud ye not one the other. Except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again. Before I read that last phrase, mom and dad, we know what we're talking about, right? Husband and wife, we know exactly what we're discussing. We're discussing not the living room, not the kitchen. We're discussing the bedroom. Amen? I love that gif where the monkey just, the monkey's eyes go, right? That was one of those moments. Ladies and gentlemen, we know what we're talking about, right? Okay. Baptist churches, be late, don't get excited too early, and definitely don't talk about this. <laughs> we have to. Guess who's teaching our children about this? Google. Google doesn't teach biblical purity, perversion. At a very young age, boys and girls are getting married with a very distorted perception of what is supposed to be beautiful and pure. Isn't it fascinating the word of God starts with a man and a woman naked? And in our churches today, we don't talk about it. Maybe God wants us to. Maybe we should get ahead of it. I understand the pastor shouldn't be teaching your kids, but you should be teaching your kids. Amen. Amen. Did I say that right, Pastor John? Did I I say exactly how you wanted me to? (laughs) (laughs) So we're talking about what is a marital intimate matter. In verse 5, Paul says, Don't defraud you one another, except you both agree, so that you can pray and fast, but then come together again. Look at it now. That Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Well, that makes sense if a husband and a wife are not together physically. You're going to have some natural desires that Satan's going to tempt you if you haven't been able to experience that. That makes sense. But what I want you to see is how in the world does Satan know that you and your wife or you and your husband have not been together intimately? Satan is not omniscient. There's only one in all of space, that's omniscient. His name is God. Satan can't know your head. People come and say, Well, does Satan know my thoughts? <laughs> no. He just sees how you're acting and he can determine what your thoughts are. So Satan doesn't have omniscience about your life. So if he's tempting couples who are not together, that means he is somehow, some way, watching. This is the original creeper, the original peeper. This is awkward. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're married, you have an enemy who watches, who spies every part of your marriage, including the most intimate parts of it. This should motivate you to be praying for your spouse. To be holding them tightly. To keep them close. Because you have an enemy that wants to ruin your marriage. And he is ruining many of them in this particular area. But it goes beyond that. Uh, Satan knows what we're looking at online. Both men and women. He knows who we're talking to. Both men and women. He knows where we're going throughout the day. He knows what we're consuming. He watches how we behave. And he has, he has the upper hand on all of us. He has thousands of years of data and he has realized Ooh, if I just do that to a man whoever he is he's going to have a hard time with that because I've watched it for thousands of years if I do this to a woman I know what's going to happen I've been doing it for thousands of years and so we have to keep each other close we have an enemy we are in paradise with an enemy world the world in which we live God gives us many blessings But there is an enemy looking to destroy what we have. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at the second foe. And it is a difficult one for us in America. But it is exactly what we are dealing with. It is a seditious surrounding. The second foe, the second adversary, the second battle that we face is a seditious surrounding. Satan is at work to destroy our marriages, and he does this in many ways, one of which is to influence society around us to make it difficult for marriages to succeed. Verse number 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Let me put this in modern vocabulary. Are laws really necessary? Is there even a God? And the list goes on from there. You see, Satan loves chaos. And there's no better way to create chaos than to question authority. Remember, when law and order is removed, you have chaos. We've been watching that for four years in our country. With with law being removed, there is chaos. And he creates chaos by whispering into the ears of responsible people you don't need a ruler. He whispers into the ears of societies, you don't really need to obey the authorities. In fact, they're flawed. They're manipulative people who have created this global scheme to steal your children, harvest their blood, and then protect the circumference of the earth because it's flat. And, and they, you get thinking all of these thoughts that are wildly untrue, but you start to say, yeah, we don't have to obey them. And you have a lawless, rebellious, and seditious society to which we in America are becoming a society where every man does that which is right in his own eyes here's the fascinating truth about that phrase it shows up in the Bible three times every man does that which is right in his own eyes twice in the book of Judges and it's attached directly to a husband and a wife where the marriage dissolves and you have wild things happening as a result including assault and dismemberment The third time in which it shows up in the Bible is in the matter of David and Uriah. You see, when we start to do things that are right in our own eyes, we despise authority. We have no respect for authority. And eventually, we don't respect the supreme authority. And there's no order in society. Eventually, there's no order in the home. And that's when you have a problem. America is quickly becoming a dangerous place for marriage over the past 50 years, which is not a lot, especially since your pastor is approaching that. (laughs) Do you know the U.S. marriage rate has dropped 60% in the past 50 years? That's an incredible number. 60% less marriages today than 50 years ago. And I know this much. There's no less sexual activity in society. So, what is that? It's fornication, fornication, fornication with no commitment to the marriage. There's no respect for authority. It's a problem. Americans hate restrictions, boundaries, rules, and authorities. The spirit of America is freedom, and praise God for it. But it comes even at the cost of Romans 13. Which teaches God's people to respect and honor authority because it comes from God. And as a pastor, and I've talked to your pastor, I've talked to other pastors, I have seen authority disrespected in the past four years more than in any other time in our lifetime. There's a mistrust. There's a distrust. Pastors are experiencing simply because they're in a position of authority. But we hear people uh, applauding when we mock the president, when we discredit the IRS, when we disobey the boss, and we hear Satan telling us, just defy the law altogether. But a disregard for any authority is the first step to eventually and ultimately disregarding the ultimate marital authority. Gentlemen, your wives live in a seditious society. So they hear it all day. Don't respect authority. Gentlemen, this is going to be a problem for your marriage. Ladies, all day long your husband hears disrespect authority. Laugh and mock at the stumbling and the fumbling. And we begin to disregard any authority as men. And eventually this creeps into our marriages. Because Satan would like to subtly convince our wives and our husbands that no one needs to be obeyed. Which is why we must pray for one another and keep our spouses close. Marriage is hard. It's hard because we have enemies that fight against us. Let's look at verse number 2. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Write down foe number three. It's a self-centered spirituality. A self-centered spirituality. Spirituality. Satan is working in our world to destroy marriages, both through a seditious society, but also he is influencing religions, Christianity chiefly, to make it difficult for marriages to succeed. He is constantly whispering into the ears of pastors and preachers and teachers, make sure people see the benefit in Christianity. He's whispering into the ears of people, make sure that they know when they do good, that God will do good in return. Make sure that when they give money, that God will bless them with more money. It's this idea to make sure that if we're going to give anything to God, we have to make sure we're going to get something in return. That is essentially a self-serving faith, a self-serving religion, a self-serving Christianity. Uh, Satan isn't afraid of religion at all. In fact, he loves it when it's all about man. I was driving around here, and I'll be careful to mention any names, but driving around I saw a real big, big billboard in front of a particular church. And it said, and I understand, listen, I give people the benefit of the doubt. I believe pastors and church leaders mean well. They want to do right. There's no doubt in my mind. They're out to help people, and they want to propagate Christianity. But uh, we're in a day and age in which self is so ingrained into our philosophies. But this billboard simply said... You matter. And that sounds good, right? Of course. We want people to feel like they matter. We want people to feel like the Lord cares about them. After all, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But that sets the precedent for why you come to church. You come for you. It should say, God matters. Right. Because when we come to church for God, we don't need anything to walk out to feel like it was worth our time. Because we came to give, not to get. We came for him, not for us. And so Satan has subtly been doing what he did with Eve. From the beginning of time, he is saying, God has something for you. Or in this case, God doesn't want you to get too much. But it's all about you. He makes it about us. What we're going to get or what we're not going to get. Satan loves church worship as long as people are at the center of it. And he convinced Eve to disobey God's word because he convinced her that she would be spiritually better off. He didn't say, you know, bad things. Oh, it'll be so much fun. It'll be so much pleasure. He said, no, 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 you'll be wise. You'll be more spiritual. You'll have more knowledge. And what woman wouldn't want to get more spirituality, more wisdom, more knowledge? Ladies are more spiritual than men. That's factual. That goes back to the garden. Remember, male and female created he them. I didn't say women necessarily are more godly than men. That's up to all of us. But women are more spiritual. That's why the cults are full of women. That's why religions are full of religion. Churches tend to have more women than men in them. And so Satan was saying to her, you'll get benefits. You'll be more spiritual. And she bought it. But it destroyed the holy marriage that she had just obtained minutes earlier. Maybe you don't see what I see, but I suspect you do, knowing your pedigree, knowing your pastors. But do you see what I see in modern Christianity? I see a religion that was once focused on God that is now focused on man. I see a religion once focused on pleasing God, now focused on pleasing man. I see a religion once focused on the glory of God, now focused on the good of man. I see a religion that once asked, what can we do for God, now asking, what can God do for us? And yet it's been so subtle that it's gone undetected. Unknowingly, Christianity is now on a weekly basis converting the mind of its participants to think very selfishly when it comes to God. Satan has done something that only he can do. He's taken self-centeredness He's wrapped it up in Jesus' wrapping paper and given it to us, and we open it up with glee and think we're getting something good. It's a Trojan horse that has resulted in a very dangerous, self centered spirituality. And anytime we become self centered, even because we're in church, it is a threat to our marriage. If you were with us on Friday night, the third thing we talked about as the framework of a successful marriage is humility. Marital intimacy requires the humility of a couple. For two to become one, there are drastic changes. And drastic changes do not come with the presence of pride. It must be humility. And when we become self-centered, whether it be because of Fox News or because of CNN or because of the pastor here or the preacher there or because of that author here or the blog there, we become a Threat to becoming one, and eventually that marriage is dissolved. So, again, husbands, I have to remind you that your wives are living in a spiritually self centered day and age. Ladies, your husbands are living in that same spiritually self centered day and age. Satan is subtly working through the course of life to get your spouse convinced that God's very existence. Is for their well being. So when you come home, if your spouse isn't existing for your well being, there's gonna be some friction because they think they're that important. And your marriage will be in trouble. So again, I ask are you praying for your spouse? Are you keeping your spouse very close? Because there's an enemy that wants to destroy your marriage. Let's look at verse number seven. Verse number 7, Genesis 3, 7, the Bible says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Oh, man, what happened to that beautiful marital intimacy of Genesis 2:25 they were both naked and not ashamed it was just everything was was open and transparent and now they're now they're a little nervous about each other seeing themselves so uh, exposed so uncomfortable verse 8 and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees Of the garden. From this point on, marriage is now exposed to pride, shame, and fear. Satan didn't destroy their marriage necessarily, but he certainly made it harder, didn't he? And that's precisely what he will do to us if we allow him to. Write down number four spousal sin. Spousal sin. What I tell young couples when they look at me like a tree full of owls, when I say your marriage is going to be very hard, they look at like I'm indicting them. Like, you don't know us. We're perfect together. Well, I say, I'm looking at two sinners. Right now there's a life of one sinner and a life of one sinner. And you two are going to make this awesome decision to say, let's try doing it together. Two sinners is like double the trouble. You have a hard enough time living with yourself. Now you're going to bring someone else into it. And that's precisely what happens in marriage is why it's so hard. And what makes it really difficult is you can be on your spiritual toes, doing everything right, reading your Bible, praying daily, focused on the Lord, being full of the Holy Ghost, getting in church. You can do everything right. But if your spouse is not, your marriage is going to be difficult. You can be holy and pure, but if your spouse is unholy and impure, it's going to make life very, very challenging. Any contention your life experiences as a marriage, it is the result and consequence directly of sin. Only by pride cometh contention. Yeah, but it's just over where to put the plates in the cupboard. Only by pride cometh contention. Yeah, but he won't put the toilet seat down. Only by pride cometh contention everything down to the smallest detail, when you and I can't cooperate, when we can't submit, when we can't just agree, when we can't apologize, only by pride cometh contention. So sin is always going to be an enemy of your marriage. Always. This is why we need to pray for one another every day. I have a prayer that I pray for my wife. I would say every day, but sometimes I forget, but it's nearly every day. It's threefold. And it always starts with this. I pray that God would keep Tara holy happy, and healthy. Those are the three things I ask for. I'm a preacher, so even our prayers are alliterated, but that first one is key. Holy. What am I praying for? I'm praying that God doesn't lead her into temptation. I'm praying that there aren't evil men that try to seduce her and that she falls. to. I'm praying that what she sees on a blog or on TV or on the internet or in a magazine doesn't lead her down a bad path. I'm praying that bitterness doesn't get into her heart. I'm praying that she doesn't experience unholiness because I want her to be pure and clean for her sake and for the sake of our marriage. How many marriages end in infidelity? Well, that started somewhere. It started with a phone call. It started with an email. It started with a text. It started with a look. It started with a conversation. And we need to pray for our spouses to be holy and to be pure. Now, Genesis 3 gives us the consequences of sin. And we're going to see in them what I would would say are good examples of why sin is an enemy to our marriage. These are specific to them, but they have all fouled Adam and Eve into our marriages because they have been God's curse on men and women. So let's read them and make application to our lives. But understand all of our sin, no matter what they are, you don't have to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to have your own sin and your own consequences. But these are general ones that teach us they hurt our marriage. Verse number 16. Unto the woman he, God, said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. That doesn't say in thy conception. It says and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. So it's fascinating when we start to dig into Genesis, what that tells me, and I don't know exactly, nor do you, it's foreign to us, but it looks like before the fall, had Eve had children, it would have been painless. But it also looks like she didn't conceive that easily. Before the fall. I could be totally wrong on that, but God says because you sinned, now you're going to have pain in childbirth and your conception will be multiplied. So, something to do with a change in the reproduction of a woman's body takes place there. But nonetheless, as she has children at this point on, there will be sorrow there. So, what did sin do to Eve? It made motherhood sorrowful. How did it make motherhood sorrowful? Well, Physically, she's going to have pain, so that's not fun. But when a mom carries a baby in her belly for nine months and her body goes through all these wild changes and hormones are raging and she can't sleep and her back hurts and the baby's kicking and and she has all of these difficulties for nine months, then she goes into labor for like three weeks and it's awful and horrific and she's screaming and she hates every part of that. The baby comes out and that baby means more to her because of what she went through, all that turmoil, all that sorrow. Listen, if Eve was popping out babies without any pain, they probably wouldn't mean that much to her because it'd be easy to have another one, not a big deal. But to go through all of that, to have this child, and this child comes out and a mom just says, this child means the world to me. And a husband says, let me hold it. Get away from my child. (laughs) She doesn't trust anybody with her kid because she went through all the pain You know, guys have become idiots immediately. We haven't gone through any of that. So a mom starts to really cherish her child, and that's why, moms, you worry about everything. You fear anything bad happening to your child. You bear the burden of your children for a lifetime because you know what it took to have that child. You say, well, yeah, that's all we know. Did the consequences of Eve's sin impact her marriage? Well, let me answer that question with another question. Gentlemen, do not amen out loud. This wouldn't be good for you. But does a mother's maternal burden help or hurt the average marriage? It's funny. you You guys won't even move your head. I like it. Well played. I'll say it for you. A mother's intense care burden Sorrow for her child makes marriage hard. Because it immediately puts a wedge in between her and her husband. Immediately. And so I'd like you to write down in your notes, before you yell at me, improper parental priorities make marriage challenging. And it has become an adversary to marriage as a result of a consequence of sin. Sin. This is something I'm starting to step up my teaching on because I see it in our church and because of the way culture is going, diminishing the man, elevating the woman, and there is a dysfunction in society between male and female. Children now are taking a much higher place of priority in our homes. And as a result, it is hurting our marriages. I am counseling men now who have children to win their wife back over because they've been replaced. I am watching couples who are madly in love. They beg God for a child. God gives them a child. That child comes out of the womb, and instantly that marriage no longer matters to that mother. And she dotes on and she loves that child to the expense of their marriage. And the husband is in the background as a secondary citizen to that home to the point where I have to tell guys, I have to look them in the eye and say, "Uh, gentlemen, you have been replaced. You have to win your wife's heart over again. And these things ought not to be so. Why is this happening? It's happening because our society puts a priority on family. Family is important. Family is key. And I don't believe the Bible teaches that anywhere. The Bible teaches marriage is the key. I know, it's super quiet in here, Pastor John. There should be a large gap, gentlemen, between your love for Christ and your love for your wife. You can amen that one. That's totally, totally Bible. Let's try it again. There should be a large gap between your love for Christ and your love for your wife. Amen! I'll do it for you. Now, there should be equally as big of a gap between your love for your wife and your love for your child. Now, that's like blasphemy to a society that worships children. And I have one here, by the way. So as you know, I love children. I have have children. None of them feel unloved. But they will all tell you I love their mother more than them. In our home, we don't compete for love because the Bible doesn't tell us to. The Bible never tells me to die for my children. Would I do it? Of course. I think. But the Bible tells me to love my wife like Christ loved the church. What's happening unknowingly is that we are focusing on the family as a society and in our churches. It's all about family. Is there any wonder why when the family doesn't exist in the home anymore, that the marriage falls apart. Why infidelity is taking place later and later now in forties and fifties, because the marriage has fallen apart while the kids have been the focus. Why is that happening? Mothers have a have a passionate desire to protect their child. Their sorrow in childbearing and becoming a mom. Fathers are left to just go along with that, and the marriage is nothing. It shocks me how many couples in my own church that I have to ask them, hey, uh, father, mother, when is the last time you went away with just your spouse? The answer always is the honeymoon. But we take family vacations every year. Well, what are you trying to build, a family or a marriage? Here's the thing. Have a great marriage, you'll have a great family. It's just that simple. On the way up here, my wife, we're thinking about all the people we know, which is a small sample size, but we cannot think of a family that has produced good children in a bad marriage. And I would argue you probably can't do it either right now. Pick a family that produces good kids, I guarantee you they have a good marriage. So what should we focus on? Our parenting skills or our marital skills? Marriage. Marriage first. I'm I'm saying all this to say that family actually is one of the biggest threats to marriage today and to suggest that sounds backwards. But that's the truth. We've got to move quickly. 16, again, verse 16, at the end of it. God said to Eve, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Real quickly, just write insecurity as a foe. To marriage, a secondary consequence of sin, insecurity. Unfortunately, the sin that Eve committed resulted in this innate, insatiable desire for her husband. And ladies, if you were honest with yourself, I think you would uh, admit that you hate the fact that it never seems enough for you from your husband. Now, listen. I am your biggest proponent in this room. Whenever there's marriage conversations at our church or counseling, I am all over the guy because that's how the Bible tells me to treat it. It's all about male leadership. And we're not giving you ladies enough to work with. I get it. But I think if you were honest ladies, you would hate the fact that it doesn't seem like it's ever enough for you. If he takes a day off at work, in your mind, you're already wishing he would take off tomorrow to be with you. When he says, I love you, in your mind, you're already saying, I wish you would say it more. If he recognizes how beautiful you are, you're wishing, where has that been? There's just this massive desire for your husband that comes from sin, unfortunately. And it's the insecurity that comes with being married to a man that, unfortunately, it never seems to be enough for you. I'm out of time and it's difficult for me to wrap this up but the curse on Eve was relational the curse on Adam was logistical everyone Eve loved children and husband would now be painful to work with and everything Adam loved, the ground, it would be painful to work with. Sin impacted our lives from the beginning and it impacts our marriage because it impacts who we are write down real quick, letter C and we will be done impatience and tolerance. Because in verse 17, God told Adam cursed is the ground for thy sake in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee and so on and so forth. But ladies, just so you know guys come home from work works hard. Everything's hard. Unless you're in a union, that's the way around the curse, but uh, (laughs) works hard. The guy goes outside this is a union town, isn't it Pastor (laughs) John? Um, But guys go out to the yard and everything's hard. They go downstairs, everything's hard. They go to work, everything's hard. They go to the office, everything's hard. And and that's the curse. If you ever ask, why does everything have to be so hard? Genesis chapter 3. So when husband comes into the house or upstairs, have you noticed he doesn't seem that interested in what you're concerned about? He lacks the patience, he lacks the tolerance, he lacks the grace. And you feel like you can't talk to him, he's short with you, he's snippy with you. That's the consequence of sin. And the point being, in our lives, if we sin, there will be consequences. And that consequence always makes it into marriage. So marriage is worth the fight. It's worth the effort. But we need to be sober. We need to stay on our spiritual and relational toes. We need to pray for each other. And don't give in and don't give up to all these battles coming your way. As I said at the introduction, the Garden of Eden was paradise. It was glorious but it was intended to be a battlefield. Your marriage will always be a battle. Don't make it a fight with each other. Make it a fight for each other. Because it can be awesome, but it comes with work. It comes with work. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer.